Well, hey there. Thanks for listening to the Jim Meskimen Podcast, which is where we are right now. This is the 24th day of February in the year 20,000. Well, it's not called 20,000, is it? 20,000 something units of time. 20,000 units of time. I've just changed the date of the year. 2015 is the year, which is a nice uh, round mathematical number. It just occurs to me. 2015 should be very hopeful. And a beautiful sunny day, crisp and cold here in Los Angeles, uh, but not nearly as crisp and cold as it is in most of the rest of the country. That's no big uh, need me to tell you. It's pretty cold out here. A lot of snow, a lot of ice. Uh, it's only snowed twice in my memory in my hometown here of Tarzana. My hometown here of Tarzana, whenever I say hometown, I have to talk like Harrison Keeler. Hometown in Tarzana, California, where the snow hardly ever falls. And why people from Minnesota love to come to Tarzana, walk around barefoot, and uh, Skype their neighbors back in Minnesota to tell them what the temperature is reading, what the thermometer says. But it did snow a couple of times. There were some blizzards, actually, uh, that I remember driving in, in Tarzana, which is so unlikely. That's like saying that's like saying it's like snowing out in the, uh, in the middle of the Sahara, you know, Ventura Boulevard, a blizzard one time. I pulled over to the side of the road, not because I had to, but because I just wanted to marvel at it. Anyway, that's the weather. I just thought I'd start with the weather. I don't have a whole lot to talk to you about today, which is a, a dreadful way to start a podcast. But I thought I would share uh, with you a little bit about a side of my life that uh, maybe you don't know about. Uh, I don't even think about it very much. It's it's seriously like a past life. But when I was a cartoonist in my early years, every now and then I'd still pick up a pen and I find I can draw things. Uh, still not exactly the way I'd like to. Who I'd like to draw like is the guy that did all those wonderful uh, mad magazine satires back in the 60s. Matt, if you haven't read Mad Magazine... Why? What an experience. I grew up with it. I guess I have a tender spot for it. But uh, Mort Drucker, which is a great name, Mort Drucker. You know, it's just such a down-to-earth. It's like a Mort Drucker could be the guy that sells you bagels at the deli or, you know, the guy who rear-ended your grandfather in a Model T. I got rear-ended by that fellow Mort Drucker and uh, that ruined that old Model T. Anyway, he was... I hope he's still alive. I don't actually know. I could Google it, but uh, what his work is is uh, is immortal. He uh, did all those wonderful drawings of, uh, of movie satires and uh, all the celebrities of the day. And he had such a unique style, totally, totally unique style, unique to him, unique to his work process, whatever that was. Um, I know he was working from I don't know, probably publicity photos of movies plus his own imagination. I mean, and there couldn't have been many reference photos for him to work from. So he, he probably had a vast catalog of, of images that he drew from, obviously photographically inspired, but then as they you know worked their way through his consciousness and onto the paper, they took on a whole nother, just a whole nother language, which any great cartoonists develops their own language, like Al Hirschfeld. Uh, Mort Drucker was the same way. And I would try to learn that language, that specific language of how to express cheeks and jowls and hair and eyes, uh, which he did so well. He put so much life. Uh, you can tell I'm very enthusiastic about this, this minor little thing. But for me, it just, I don't know. I, I, I guess as a kid, you know, when you're a kid, you stare at things for a long time, <laughs> particularly if nobody's hurrying you around and you don't have much to do. And and you're a sort of introverted child, which I guess I was, I don't know, compared to what. 
um, certainly not compared to today. And I would stare at things. You know, when you're a kid, you stare at things. And I would stare at the drawings of Mort Drucker and just dissect every detail and wonder about it. And I think what attracted me to it was what attracts me to art today. There's a vibrancy. There's a life that's put there. And, and it's a, quite a miracle that an artist can put life into a flat, dead surface. And yet we take it for granted. That's what painters do. That's what Leonardo did. And that's what Mort Drucker, I'm going to put him in the same sentence as Leonardo da Vinci, Mort Drucker, the great cartoonist, put life into paper and ink. And so that it attracted you and it could delight you and tickle you and make you laugh and make you just go, oh, I got to look at that again. I got to look at that again. And going back, you know, I would, I would, if a if a magazine copy of a 1967 Mad Magazine was sitting here, I would I would just take some time out and I would look at it again. That's how that's how cool it was. So you know, other people probably feel that way about you know the engines of certain vehicles. Or I know I met a guy, a wonderful guy, Mark Moffat. I think he's a doctor, Doctor Mark Moffat, who's who's that way. He's nutty about ants. I think he also likes more Drucker too. But um, yeah, he's an ant expert. He's traveled all over the world. Uh, so ant experts, uh, herpetologists, snake experts, they, you know, they have, they have uh, just tremendous interest in little things. And there's, there's a lot of life and a lot of the infinity of life. I spoke about infinity last time, I think. That seems like an infinity of time ago. Uh, anyway, so when I was a kid, I was one of those kids that sat down and drew for hours. We didn't have really a lot of great TV. Back then, maybe I would have been thrown off the rails. I would have probably not got my my 10,000 hours in. I reckon I did 10,000 hours. You know that quote about, uh, from Malcolm Gladwell about a person has to do about 10,000 hours of practice of something before they get really good at it or something. I'm misquoting it entirely. But certainly the professionals that you know have put in 10,000 hours of practice, like the Beatles famously uh, put in a heck of a lot of practice before they hit it big. Anyway, didn't watch a lot of TV, sat down and, uh, you know, I started with shirt cardboards and pieces of paper from my dad's office and then, you know, I graduated up to sketchbooks and just any old piece of paper. And at school, I would draw on the desks because the desk had a certain kind of quality that was actually very nice. There were these sort of beige, very, well, formica, I imagine, desks and the gray number two pencil on a beige formica desk was very attractive. Plus, you could smear it just a little bit and get a tonality that was nice and uh Obviously, I wasn't paying any attention to what was being taught to me because I, I paid a lot of attention to surreptitiously uh, drawing on desks back when I was a kid. And then, you know, then you'd have to clean them off. But, I, you know, I was putting in time, putting in practice. You can't really noodle on a saxophone when you're in third grade and expect no one to notice. But you can doodle on a desk. So there's an advantage there to the visual arts as far as ignoring your teachers is concerned and getting done what really needs to get done. Because really, that propelled me. Eventually, you know, I'd drawn so much. Uh, gosh, I remembered this the other day. At, uh, my mother came and told me that, I don't know, this is around about fourth grade, fifth grade, maybe. So how old am I? Nine, eight, nine. Came and, they, and she said, uh, you know, they want to know if you would like to draw cartoons for the Halloween fair, you know, to sit at a table and draw on fluorescent paper and make these postcards and you could draw with a marking pen and make drawings for and sell them. I, now that I, I'm an adult, I realize they didn't call her to ask, would Jim be interested? She's, she probably initiated the whole thing, but it's lovely either way. And I was so thrilled by that because that was the closest I'd come 
this lifetime to a professional request uh, for my professional talent, you know, that uh, in an area that I was fairly competent at, which was drawing little cartoons. That was the first time. And I was like, oh, I'm being treated more or less kind of like what I will be treated like as an adult. People will ask, would you like to do this professional thing? And it thrilled me beyond measure. And so I did that. I sat down at a table and I, again, imitating, as I always do, I was imitating the style of these 1960s postcards that were very popular, you know, during the, the war years and, you know, peace and love and a lot of cross-hatching. And I used to do it with a black flare pen on fluorescent paper, which is very absorbent, which was good because then I didn't smear it quite so much with my little hands. I was going to say my little pudgy hands, but I didn't have pudgy hands. And then later on, I had a sixth grade teacher. So then I'm about 11. I had a sixth grade teacher named Mr. Edler, who was fantastic because he encouraged me to do cartoons. And he encouraged me in a very kind of man-to-man way, which is really nice. You know, you really need that when you're a kid sometimes for a guy to say, these drawings are really good. You know, you should keep doing that. You could become an, I think he said, you know, an editorial cartoonist. I was like, oh, editorial cartoonist, which to me meant, you know, you're in the newspapers so people can see your stuff and it's ink. And I had no real strong attraction to politics or any of the topics that the political cartoonists were addressing in those days, except, you know, I believed in peace and love and all that. And, you know, don't don't kill people and don't drop bombs and stuff like that. But uh, so I, I actually started to move in that direction. You know, in sixth grade, I was drawing a lot and I was encouraged both by my mom and by Mr. Edler and a few of my friends to, to draw. And I became like the cartoonist in the class. I wasn't a class clown. I was a class cartoonist. And, you know, there's a wonderful thing about that that I, I didn't credit at the time. I did it because it was a big relief to do it, a relief from the worries of, you know, childhood and, and the various you know, there wasn't a lot of bullying that went on in my case. I was not a bully magnet at that time, but I would draw. And I, I didn't, uh, as I said, I didn't watch a lot of TV. Boring. Television was so grown up and boring back then. It wasn't catering to really the third grade intelligence as it does today. So, uh, gosh, Drew and Drew. And I'm grateful for it because that put me on an interesting path of being an artist and knowing, I guess, that I could make my living as an artist. And I didn't know exactly what kind of art I'd be making a living at. but And indeed, I started out making a living as, a, as an illustrator cartoonist and graduated from there to, being, um, to doing radio and uh, voice stuff. Stuff like this. I'm here with Marty Dordenauer. Marty, uh, you've had a change in your career and you are weathering, weathering the economy. You, had a, you were very highly placed as a corporate jester and uh, you worked in a big financial firm until very recently and you were one of the best you were called uh, the, the lighthearted, uh, funny guy yeah in yeah, Motley. yeah and uh and you are now uh, out on your own now those years you worked for uh, what was the name of the big uh, corporate client that you had that you worked for so many years splitster gray splitster gray of course we know that from geez reading the wall street journal uh-huh. forever splitster gray had to handle billions and billions of dollars of assets so those corporate execs those guys at the top were they tense? No, you certainly were tense. They uh, were very tense. Their day would start at 5.30 a.m. Okay. Uh, there was always a competitive atmosphere. Who's going to get into the, to the office first? And because of that, uh, sometimes I'd have to get in there at 5.15, 
and a long, long, tense days, and a lot of, you know, a lot of gesturing on my part. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people think that the day of the gesture has long passed, that uh, it went out with the benevolent monarchy. Right. Uh, but how did you stumble into getting this fantastic position? Well, I stumbled into it because I, too, myself have come from the world of high finance, uh, and I'm, I, I know the, the lingo. I know, mm-hmm. uh, I know the lexicon, mm-hmm. uh, I, and I've, I... I Graduated with a master's degree. Well, that's a lot different than entertaining these guys and really bringing them uh, into a uh, you know better spirits. I still very much entertain them. Uh, don't get me wrong, but what uh, it's a it's a level of humor uh, that they purely understand uh, and and mainly only uh, understand. Mm. Uh, you know, the layman won't get some of the jokes, and, mm. and and some of them are really hilarious. And mm-hmm. I, I you know I would really crack them up. Mm-hmm. Can you can you remember any of those gags that you used? Well, to Well, there pull? were many verbal gags mm-hmm. or very written jokes which were lovely. But then I would also pantomime act out mm-hmm. uh, corporate oh, sure. takeovers. I would uh, mm-hmm. act out uh, acquisitions of different companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that always made, made them very entertaining. For example, there was one wonderful joke having to do with mutual funds. Mm-hmm. and uh, That re- seems like something ripe for, uh, for some really uh, raucous material right raucous there. Raucous material right yeah. there. Now, remember that uh, these uh, jokes were told with me wearing a, a, a red and blue and green uh, jumper uh-huh. uh, with uh, slippers with bells on the end of them uh-huh. and, and a funny little cockeyed hat. Uh-huh. Now, you're, you're wearing something sort of similar. It's a little more paled down. It's a little more muted, but... And it's a three-piece jumper. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and those are beautiful cufflinks you're wearing there. But I can see this got a kind of a playful. And your wingtips, they do curl up there at the end. <laughs> they certainly yeah, do. Other than those are little bells. There. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, the joke would go, uh, so did you hear about the uh, reserve fund that the Chinese company has on the offshore? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then naturally someone would say, of course we had, because their mutual fund reserve was uh, plus minus uh, factoring in the gold standard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. See, now, that, that is truly something that the layman would stand outside and say, well, I that wouldn't lift my spirits at all. That would just That's like stuff I hear on uh, AM radio about, uh, you know, where the stock is going, mm. where the stock market is going, the Dow Jones. It's all uh, gobbledygook to me. But uh, oh, I'd have them crying. The top, I would have them crying really. and smashing their fists, their palms on the boardroom table with that. Now, of course, lately you've been doing some pro bono work uh, since you're not employed anymore, going to some of the, uh, the white-collar uh, prisons and uh, entertaining some of those executives that are now serving serving long sentences exactly right crime. the uh, I have gone and visited a lot of the, the my perp walk friends mm-hmm. as you could say mm-hmm. and I've tried to lift their spirits as mm-hmm. well uh, are they, they laughing still they still they, find they, that? they find it funny mm-hmm. but a lot of times frankly some of the jokes and some of the gesturing I did was at their expense uh, many, I did many many jokes mm-hmm. about sure. uh, Ponzi schemes oh well that's a that's a grand old tradition of gesturing is sure. that you, you poke, poke holes in the balloon and and they sure. they they have to take it you know and they, they enjoy it because <laughs> right. you're the only one I guess that would tell them the truth. Uh-huh. Well, uh, listen, I, I'm sure that you've got a lot on your plate right now. Well, There's yes, a lot of I gesturing to do. do. You're working with uh, government agencies now and right. also the Internal Revenue Service. Internal Revenue Service, and uh, I've branched out. Uh, uh, starting now, uh, I'm also going to be a, a town crier. Oh, well, now there's another thing that we thought went away with, uh, gosh, went away with a town crier, or went right. away with a gesture. But, but you'll find that many of the high upscale communities would prefer to have a town crier mm-hmm. uh, than to get some of their trading quips uh, from the Wall Street Journal. So I go around to these high Tony neighborhoods mm-hmm. and I talk about dividends and bond trading. Well, folks, if you hear a bell out there on the street, it may not be the ice cream man. It might be our friend here who's uh, become the town crier. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. 
cartooning, the word comes from cartone, which means a sketch, I believe, in Italian. You can correct me if I'm wrong. And that's a sketch that you do before a big painting. So uh, how does that apply to voice? Um, I'm not sure. We do approximate, for example, in impressions and imitations, we do approximate the salient points of uh, celebrities. You know, we say Jack Nicholson sounds more or less like this, uh, but he always sounded like he just got up. And that's, of course, an exaggeration or just a grasping of the high points or the most noticeable features of that wavelength of the being that is Jack Nicholson. Anyway, cartooning, voice work, all that stuff. It's all fun stuff, I realize. It's stuff that sort of represents the whimsical, fun side of life where a person is not troubled by, you know, tremendous violence around him and can take the time to think of something kind of delightful. Although one of the great cartoonists, Bill Malden, uh, that I also studied as a kid because my dad had a book of his, Bill Malden was a wartime cartoonist and had to turn in panels for, I think it was Stars and Stripes magazine every week while he was out on the front, if he really was out on the front and not doing a Brian Williams and so he was obviously under a lot of uh, deprivation and uh, hardship and still managed to get out some delightful cartoons, which must have been a real escape for him. You can tell I'm spitballing here, folks. I'm just talking about what I like to talk about, cartoons and uh, things like that. You know, I eventually got trained uh, at Hanna-Barbera, again, I think, on my mother's impetus. I, I know she told me about it. She told me there's a program at Hanna-Barbera and now I'm about 18 years old, and I'm hanging around at home. I've come home from college because I'm lovesick. And um, this girl back home that I just couldn't stand being away from. So I'm hanging around the house a lot at age 18. You know how that is. That's got to be really rough on a mom. So she found out about this program at Hanna-Barbera, and I showed my portfolio when I got in. Uh, Hanna-Barbera was uh, still an operating animation studio at the time. It was the home of the Flintstones and Yogi Bear, but at this point they were doing some pretty schlocky stuff, but it didn't matter to me. So I went in every Monday night for a while under the auspices of a guy named Harry Love, and uh, he was there to train people in all the various jobs of the animation studio, layout in betweening and design and, and stuff like this. And uh, so I went, I don't know, six weeks, part of the summer of 1978, maybe? Not sure. And they hired me out of that uh, workshop. Uh, to do a, first a coloring book and then to work under a guy named Doug Wildey who was producing a show called Godzilla <laughs> and Jana of the Jungle. And I worked as a, as a storyboard assistant for a show called Jana of the Jungle, which I, I don't think I ever saw a single episode of. But I loved working. I loved working, first of all. I was 18 and I finally had a decent job. I wasn't flipping burgers. I was sitting in an office drawing with an old guy named Don Rico uh, who was, I think he was in his 70s. I think both of the men in the office were in their 70s or 80s, perhaps. There was a guy named Chuck Couch who looked like he was so unhealthy looking. He was a really sweet man, but he looked like he had lived off of cigarettes and donuts for most of his life. And uh, Don Rico himself was quite a, a swashbuckling figure. He was a gray-haired gentleman with a nice aquiline nose, and he wore black silk shirts. He looked kind of like, like an old Zorro. Uh, no mustache, though. And uh, I think he was somehow related to, by marriage to Lena Horne or something. Anyway, he had a kind of a swingers thing going on. And he had drawn, his claim to fame was that he had drawn Captain America back in New York. And he had all kinds of New York stories and stuff. Don Rico had a voice. Uh, it was kind of like this. It was a very uh, 
very urbane kind of nice, uh, not a heavy New York accent, as I recall. He was just a, just a really warm, dear guy. And I remember one time, I'll never forget Don Rico. He was so encouraging because I really didn't know crap about drawing at the time. And, you know, you're drawing in a space the size of a business card, which doesn't help. Always sharpening pencils, you know. Uh, but anyway, I was struggling with one thing or another, and Don said, Hey, uh, Jimmy, take a look at this. And he showed me uh, Gustave Doré's uh, Dante's Inferno, which are etchings, actually. They're not drawings. But they're so magnificent and, uh, you know, just incredibly complex. And but the, the, the line is very magnificent. Everything's really terrific about that work. It's absolutely timeless. And, uh, you know, so I tried to integrate some of that into, into my... When I had to draw a cliff or a rock or something, I would try to give it a little Gustave Doré for the storyboard of this stupid show in Hanna-Barbera. But Don Rico would look at that and go, Chuck, wake up, look at this. Look what Jimmy's done. I showed him the book and this is what he does. And Chuck Couch talked like that. Oh, that's marvelous, Don. Say, the kid's really got talent. He had this wonderful emphysemic... <laughs> lovely old guys. And we had an office that had a couch not just Chuck couch, we had an actual couch, a sofa, that the three of us would take turns sleeping on. It turned out that being a cartoonist was not the life I really was prepared to embrace wholeheartedly, but I did whenever I needed to get a job of one kind later on. Like in New York, I would uh, I would seek out the cartooning job. I sought out the cartoonist. The cartoonist gave me my, my start, uh, at least my foothold, into New York City when I, uh, this is another long story, but I, I you know, I studied art in Spain, and that was no longer cartooning. That was, you know, that was serious painting and, and realist painting, about which I'll talk some other time. But when I came back to New York, I wasn't going to get a job as a realist oil painter uh, or a portraitist or anything like that. I didn't have that developed a portfolio or even that desire. But I, I knew I could get jo- a job as a cartoonist illustrator. And some of the first people I met through friends of friends were Marvel artists. And back then, Marvel was not the, the behemoth mega corporation it is today. It was like, uh, it was just comic books. Maybe they had some thermoses. I don't know. But I met these guys, uh, including the great Bob Camp. I call him the great Bob Camp because he is a incredible draftsman, cartoonist, and he's got a style of drawing that I just have always loved a lot. Scrappy guy from Texas who I met and just sort of an outlaw, enjoying being an outlaw. But anyway, I lived in a a loft on Warren Street with a bunch of cartoonists for my first few months in New York. So that was, these were the guys that had the connections that said, hey, go look at this guy, go talk to this guy. And at the time, I decided I wasn't interested in drawing like the Marvel artists. I'd just come off of two years of, you know, classical painting, and uh, I wasn't a huge Marvel fan, to be honest. You know, I, I work for them now as a voice artist, but and I respect the style very much, but it is, like I said before, it's a language, and it wasn't a language that I particularly had any great affinity for. You know, characters that are ten heads high, and so, I don't know, wasn't my cup of tea, but I also met other people, like cartoony-type people. I worked for King Features Syndicate and eventually got a job working for Rankin Bass of uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer fame. And they were launching a new show called The Thundercats. And I worked for them for a year designing all the secondary characters, vehicles, and weapons for that show. I was the only artist there. All the other artists were over in the Pacific Rim doing the really hard work. And that launched me into, you know, being stably settled in New York with a job that was, you know, I was able to save a little money and get more training and uh, start with improv and stuff like that. So cartooning, just this art form of taking something 
very simple in your mind and translating it into often very, very simple lines or complicated lines uh, so that people can read them and experience some, some sort of emotional impact of one kind or another. And, uh, you know, that's breaking it down in very technical ways. But, I mean, I loved Peanuts. I loved Pogo. I loved uh, Rick O'Shea and uh, Mort Drucker, as I said, and Don Martin, for that matter, and these other mad artists, and uh, the great Jack Davis. And uh, I loved Bob Camp. Bob Camp later on, I was able to return the favor. He he helped me get into animation. I helped him get into animation when um, I recommended him to succeed me at Rankin Bass, and then he took over and eventually got onto the Ren and Stimpy bandwagon and I believe had quite a bit to do with the design, wonderful design elements in Ren and Stimpy and that whole style. Well, that's a whole lot more than you ever needed to know about me and cartoons. But do you draw cartoons? I've noticed that a lot of voice actors and a lot of actors in general, but voice actors in particular... Are, are also closet cartoonists. And uh, it's, it's one of those things. I don't think you lose that. It's just too simple. You know, you're not going to forget how to be a cartoonist any more than you're going to forget how to ride a bike. And people are delighted by it. You know, you can draw a little cartoon for people, children especially, uh, and give it to them. And they're just, they have the best time. Uh, it was wonderful when my daughter was growing up. We would sit down and we would draw together. And it's something I recommend for any parent because you're starting, even if you've never drawn before, it's a great way to start with your child. Sit down and and play the game of, you know, sit down and draw something and for the other person to guess what it is. You need to draw a hot dog or a kitten or a bunny or something. And then you say, okay, now you draw something, I'll guess what it is. It's a marvelous way of having a conversation with just pictures, which little kids are naturally drawn to. Plus, it's hilarious. Plus, it creates things for you to put in a scrapbook and later embarrass them with on The Jimmy Kimmel Show when he is 60. Thanks for listening. The Impression Guys is... uh, Making progress, folks. We're making progress towards being on television. Hope to have something to announce very soon. Anyway, thanks for your patience. Ross Marquand, of course, is now on The Walking Dead. You can see him walking alive on the show. And uh, I've seen just a couple of clips, and he's terrific. He's a great actor. What can you say? Uh, we always knew he was going to go far, and uh, he will. Now he's, he's well on his way. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. I hope you're having a good year so far. This looks like it's going to be a pretty fun year with a lot of interesting projects. I'm going to be uh, speaking, giving keynote speeches, starting my speaking career in earnest this year and traveling around the country, trying to tie that into also performing at different places, different venues, doing my live show, rebooting my live show. There's so much to do and so much to talk about. Plus, we're heading into an election year, I guess, pretty soon, which is super scary. But, boy, that's going to bring a lot of fodder for impressionists like me. Hope you enjoy that. Um, Keep watching the videos on uh, my YouTube channel. Anyway, I will let you know what things are going on. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Thanks to Tate Rupert for the improv. Thanks to Jeff Levin, as always, for the music. And I will talk to you soon. Bye-bye.